Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning and welcome today. Here's our top stories. Calls for President Biden to seize Texas's National Guard. This as a battle brews over border security, which side upholds the law. And is there precedent for this? Some analysis. President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, the last two Republicans standing, go head to head. We bring you the latest from the Republican primary race. Trump expected back in court today as closing arguments wrap up in his civil defamation case. More on the defense and Trump's testimony yesterday. Will UN court order Israel to suspend its military campaign in Gaza? A key decision will be made today in a case where South Africa accuses Israel of genocide. The little helicopter who could, ha could have flown its last mission on Mars. Hear what NASA is saying about its historic mission. Alaska Airline facing huge financial losses after the grounding of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. How this could impact the company's growth and when it's expecting those planes to fly again. Tens of thousands of books all housed in an impressive home library. The story of one woman's love for reading and how she built her awe-inspiring collection. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Friday, January 26th. Excited about the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. We made it through another week. But also, you know, it's interesting that Haley is not going to be in the Nevada caucuses. I know. Yeah, just the primary. And she won't get any delegates in that primary. But yeah. there might be a reason why she's doing it. It kind of revolves around public image. We'll have a little bit more on that later. Yeah, so stay tuned. But first, a deal to make changes at the southern border, something senators have been negotiating for months, could be collapsing. Republican senators giving mixed responses on whether Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was backing away from the deal and whether possible opposition from former President Trump has anything to do with it. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports from Capitol Hill. Speculations are mounting about whether Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell plans to ditch the idea of tying border policy changes to funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. This is after reports circulated that the Republican leader told his conference that these negotiations on the border were getting tough politically. Republicans now telling us that behind closed doors, the Republican leader has changed his tone. After yesterday, it sounded to me like maybe he was less enthusiastic about the border, but he didn't address Ukraine yesterday, so I, I have no idea. When he did say yesterday that uh, it's clear where our apparent nominee is on it, see that uh, was a difference in tone. And what you just heard from Senator Braun points to some comments reportedly made by McConnell where he referred to Trump as the nominee, which is big coming from McConnell considering he's not a fan of Trump, just to say it lightly. We asked other senators if they feel Trump's comments have any influence in these border negotiations after last week the former president spoke out against it writing I do not think we should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion of millions and millions of people. So when Trump weighed in and said he didn't like the deal I'm all for that because I, I don't like it either. Senator Ted Cruz told me bluntly we should listen to Trump and while Trump's influence could be a factor here it's also important to keep in mind that there's a growing number of Senate conservatives who consistently buck Senate leadership and are now speaking out strongly against this border deal, other Republicans brushed off speculations that Trump has any influence here. I don't think that's what this has ever been about. I think the border negotiations were going south uh, well before the president opined at all on it. Other Republicans and some Democrats say the talks are still ongoing and that they're feeling optimistic. But regardless of how or if a deal comes together on border policy changes and foreign aid, the real obstacle is over in the House. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Let's break down the battle between the Biden administration and Texas over the border with Hugh Fike, the director of government relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Good morning, Hugh. Democratic lawmakers are calling on the Biden administration to federalize the Texas National Guard, alleging obstruction and creation of chaos at the border. Is Texas defying the Supreme Court ruling that allows agents to keep cutting that razor wire set up by the state? Not at all. The ruling actually just said that the border agents could, in fact, cut razor wires. So what Texas is doing is still clearly within the bounds of their uh, sovereign right as a state to defend themselves against an invasion, which 
they have cited as, uh, you know, in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, uh, allows them to, to to defend themselves. And so they, they are continuing in that vein. Um, and, you know, Governor Abbott has said that he's not going to back away from it, as did 25 Republican governors around the around the country. I mean, that's half this half the country has said we defend uh, Texas's right to do this. You know, and it is interesting, Hugh, that there is precedent for this federalization of the National Guard of a state. Like back in 1954, when Eisenhower federalized it, after Gug, after the Governor Faubus of Arkansas was using his National Guard to prevent people of color from going and registering at a school. Now, that obviously has similarities, that there is both a Supreme Court ruling involved here, but a clear difference in that Texas is just looking to protect its citizens, whereas that governor in Arkansas in the 50s was clearly acting in, you know, in a racial biased way. There's a back and forth legal battle here between Texas and Abbott. Texas is now criticizing the, you know, the federal government because they're trying to cut down their razor wire, they're trying to remove their buoys, whereas Biden is taking issue with Shelby Park at near Eagle Pass being seized and being blocked off here. Who has stronger legal ground? Well, the governor of Texas is standing on firm legal ground and he should continue to press the case because the federal government is doing everything within their power to uh, open the border uh, further than what the, the state of Texas is, uh, is already allowed. And so the governor of Texas is in firm legal footing. And in fact, I think if they, if they continue to press the case, uh, so long as they make the right arguments, they'll be well within, uh, well within their reasoning to, to continue doing what they're doing. Look, I've been to Eagle Pass. I've been to this part of Texas. I used to work for a congressman from South Texas. Um, this is uh, by far and away uh, a humanitarian crisis. If you go down there and you look at the amount of trash, you look at the amount of uh, wristlets, uh, wristbands that are down on the ground because the cartels are trafficking humans and into the country. It's enti it's entirely unbelievable uh, when you go down there and view it. And so Texas is just stepping up and saying we're going to actually do the right thing for the country. But it's not just Texas. I mean, you got Arizona, you got New Mexico, you got all these other states that are trying to do what they can to prevent this from happening. And it's uh, taking a toll on not only the people coming across the border, but certainly the communities along the border. Right, Hugh, and other Republican figures are standing up for Abbott. For example, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt is saying that Oklahoma stands with Texas, and also Ron DeSantis has given his backing, too. So what's the compact between states and the federal government that Governor Abbott says has been broken by the Biden administration, and what happens if that pact is broken? Yeah, I mean, there's a social compact that says the federal government is going to take on and defend the country. And it's very clear that what what he's allowing to happen on the Texas border and uh, you know, broadly along the southern border is a violation of that compact. He's saying, I'm not allow I'm not protecting the states. I'm not protecting the country. I'm allowing millions of people to come across the border. I'm allowing uh, known uh, terrorists to come across the border. Um, and so Texas has said, you know what, that that compact is broken and we're going to step up and our expressly granted powers in the Constitution to, depend, to defend the, the, the state, but also repel an invasion. And that's explicitly said in the Constitution. And so when you know, Governor Abbott I think is talking about a broken compact, he's talking about the federal government willfully not defending the states. Right. Yeah, Hugh, I know you point out the people who are on the terror watch list. Those are not necessarily known terrorists, but they are people who are people of concern, suspected of terrorist activity. Possibly. Hugh Fike, Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute, thank you for weighing in on this important topic. Thank you. Reactions pouring in after Texas evoked its constitutional right to defend itself from an invasion. At least 14 governors declared that they stand behind Texas. The state's attorney general now says they might soon take it a step further and start deporting people. NTD's Arian Pastar has more on the border showdown. Thursday, the Texas Attorney General appeared on The Benny Show, saying that instead of evacuating, Texas will take things a step further. More razor wire, we're going to start deporting people, I think, in March. And once they start deporting people, I'm sure the Biden administration will love that. Meanwhile, illegal immigration is having a real-life impact in places across the U.S. This footage circulating this week shows that immigrants are being housed at Boston's airport. Now, that's because the state of Massachusetts doesn't have any place left to house them. However, it is also the only state in the U.S. with a so-called right to shelter law. This means the state has to provide housing to anyone who needs it. And lastly, Republican Senator Bill Haggerty on Thursday talked about the bill he's putting forward. 
We need to make certain that only citizens are counted for the purposes of allocating congressional districts and electoral votes. He says it's not right for blue cities to gain congressional seats just because illegal immigrants who aren't actually allowed to vote live there. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The battle continues between former President Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, even as the GOP frontrunner marches closer to the presidential nomination. Here's the latest from the Republican contest. Trump moves ever closer to the Republican nomination for president after his victories in Iowa and New Hampshire. Already in the lead, Trump continues to pick up endorsements from Capitol Hill. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy became the latest to back the former president on Wednesday. In a post on X, the Republican lawmaker said it's going to be Trump versus Biden and called it a choice between hope and more hurt. On Thursday, a draft resolution was introduced in the Republican National Committee, or RNC. It would have officially declared Trump the Republican Party's presumptive nominee. But the former president came out against the resolution for the sake of party unity. He said on Truth Social that he wants to finish the process off the old-fashioned way, at the ballot box. The resolution was subsequently withdrawn. The RNC also clarified that this was just a resolution and not the stance of the committee. Meanwhile, Trump continues to be vocal about his rival Nikki Haley. He has criticized her from running against him in the past. But I will never run against him, ever. She said this for years. Then she calls a news conference, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've decided to run for president. I said, that's not so surprising because I understand Nikki. She, she can't help herself. I understand her very well, better than anybody. And most recently on Truth Social, he accused her of lashing out at true American patriots. He also threatened to blacklist her campaign donors should he win the nomination. He said anyone who continues to make contributions to Haley's campaign would be barred from the MAGA camp. Haley responded on X with a link to her campaign. The former ambassador has raised $1 million since that warning, but also lost prominent funders. Metals magnate and Haley donor Andy Sabin urged her to drop out. He told Fox Business the Republican race was now essentially over, since Haley wasn't able to pull off an upset in Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. Another major Haley donor, Reed Hoffman, the billionaire co-founder of LinkedIn, also doesn't plan to keep funding her campaign, according to reports. Haley has been campaigning in South Carolina in the build-up to the state's primary next month. She's vowed to stay in the race. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Closing arguments in Trump's civil defamation trial are set to take place in New York this morning. The former president briefly testified yesterday in the case brought against him by E. Jean Carroll. The judge placed limits on what Trump could say. The jury is only deciding what additional damages, if any, he must pay. It could mean a multi-million dollar verdict against him. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case. Trump in his testimony Thursday said yes when asked by the defense if he had publicly denied Carol's rape claim to defend himself. Trump attorney Alina Haba first asked her client if he stood by his previous deposition denying the allegations. Trump answered 100% yes. He went on to say he considered it a false accusation. Judge Lewis Kaplan instructed the court to strike everything from the record after Trump's confirmation. Haba asked Trump if he ever instructed anyone to hurt Miss Carroll. Trump answered no. He responded, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly the presidency. The judge asked the court to disregard the remark after the word no. Trump was not allowed to comment on the verdict from last year. That earlier jury awarded Carroll $5 million at a trial Trump did not attend. This jury is instructed to consider only what additional damages, if any, Trump must pay Carol. Her lawyer asked for $10 million in compensatory damages and more in punitive damages. Trump has promised to appeal the rulings in both cases. Haba also questioned Carol's longtime friend, Carol Martin. The Trump attorney brought out Carol's text to Martin, where she wrote she had no security concerns at the time. Haba asked Martin if she felt Carol enjoyed the attention that came with her lawsuits against Trump. Martin said yes, it was true at different times in early years. One of Martin's texts said Carol's narcissism had run amok. Another said Carol was, quote, like a drug addict, and the drug is herself. Judge Kaplan told the nine jurors Thursday they'll likely have the case to begin deliberating by lunchtime on Friday. There were no cameras inside the courtroom, but Trump told reporters when leaving, this is not America. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
and Trump is expected back in court today. Check back in at 11 a.m. Eastern on NTD News Today for the latest on the case. And in another case, former President Trump is seeking to drop the Georgia election case. His legal team is pointing to an alleged misconduct between Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her top prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Willis is accused of paying Wade more than $650,000 an hour while having a romantic relationship with him. Trump's defense team also added that Willis had, quote, wrongfully inserted racial animus into the case and should therefore be sanctioned and disqualified. The motion comes after a recent speech by Willis. During the speech, she suggested that Wade was targeted because he's black. According to Trump's attorneys, the remark violated Georgia's rules of professional conduct. They say a disbarment could be on the table for such a violation. A hearing on Trump's motion is set to take place in Atlanta on February 15th. And in more Trump news, a former White House advisor, Peter Navarro, has been sentenced to four months in prison for contempt of Congress. He was indicted last September after defying a subpoena from the now disbanded House January 6th Select Committee. Here's what he told reporters outside the courthouse yesterday. The Department of Justice attorneys, after pressure from not just from my defense team but also from the judge himself finally acknowledged finally acknowledged that senior presidential advisors such as myself cannot be compelled to testify i am not only just the first person ever in charge but i will be the last person because of the roadmap we have established Navarro served as a trade advisor under the Trump administration. He was convicted on two counts, one for failing to submit documents related to the January 6th investigation and another for refusing to testify. The charge carried a minimum one-month prison sentence and federal prosecutors had asked the judge to make it six months instead. Navarro says he believes Trump granted him executive privilege, which could shield him from testifying in Congress. Navarro isn't the first former Trump official to be held in contempt. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon was also sentenced to four months behind bars, but he is now free as he appeals. Navarro's legal team has asked the judge to stay the sentence for further deliberation on what they're calling novel issues. The D.C. judge granted the defense one week to present the new information. And coming up, a U.N. court could order Israel to lay down its arms today. It's the latest in a case where South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide. How is Israel responding? Israeli troops intensify their attacks on Han Yunus as they continue their war against Hamas. The situation in Gaza and what the IDF has gained from this battle so far. Russia and Ukraine trade blame over the Russian plane crash near the Ukrainian border. The two warring nations spar at a United Nations meeting. What both sides are saying after the break. Welcome back. And we just have one quick correction before we start. Willis, uh, D.A. Fannie Willis is, is accused of paying Wade over $650,000 in hourly fees total, not per hour, mm. while they are having that romantic relationship, allegedly. That's right. Thank you. And we're moving on to new, uh, other news. United Nations judges in The Hague will rule today whether to order Israel to suspend its military campaign in Gaza. This as officials push ahead with efforts to negotiate a new deal for a ceasefire and release of more Israeli hostages. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the closely watched case. The judges of the International Court of Justice are due to rule on South Africa's request for emergency measures against Israel. The African nation is asking the court to order Israel to immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. South Africa has accused Israel of genocide in the Gaza Strip. Notre Dame professor Mary O'Connell explains what the case is about. Whether Israel's national leadership, its government, intends to create conditions of life or directly kill um, people of Gaza so that a significant portion no longer exists. The Genocide Convention was the first human rights treaty adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1948. It signified the international community's commitment 
to never again after the atrocities committed by the Nazis during World War II. So to be charged with genocide is, of course, a hugely problematic, huge uh, challenge to Israel's own self-identity as the state that was created to prevent future genocides against the Jewish people. The court will issue its ruling at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in a hearing expected to last about an hour. The judges will not rule on the merits of the genocide allegations, which may take years to decide. But South Africa has asked the court to issue an interim order compelling Israel to suspend its military operations. Israel has called South Africa's allegations false and grossly distorted and said it makes the utmost efforts to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza. Elon Levy, an Israeli official, accused South Africa of giving political and legal cover to the October 7th attack by Hamas that left over 1,200 Israelis dead and triggered Israel's campaign. He said Israel's legal team would dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to continue the war in Gaza until complete victory against Hamas. The court's rulings are final and without appeal, but it has no way of enforcing them. Meanwhile, diplomatic efforts to negotiate a break in the conflict continued. According to reports, U.S. and Israeli intelligence chiefs are expected to meet the Qatari Prime Minister in Europe this weekend. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Israel-Hamas war is now well over 100 days. Many continue to call for more humanitarian aid to get into the Gaza Strip. But apparently that's easier said than done. And today's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Thursday, residents of the Gaza Strip swarmed the trucks carrying humanitarian aid on a sunny day at the beach in Rafah in southern Gaza. However, residents in Gaza City apparently saw a different story on Thursday as they were seen running with boxes of humanitarian aid as gunshots were heard in the background. The gunfire and explosions allegedly killed 20 people who were waiting to get humanitarian aid, according to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health, which also blamed Israel of firing on the crowd. The Israeli military ruled out the possibility that their own aircraft or artillery carried out the strike and said they were still investigating. They suggested that the area could have been hit by a Hamas rocket. Meanwhile, on Thursday, family members of the hostages held by Hamas tried to block humanitarian aid from getting into Gaza. There are hundreds of humanitarian trucks come inside to Gaza Strip and only for one side, only for the Palestinians. There is no humanitarian steps for our hostages over there. Earlier in the week, a former hostage spoke to Israel's parliament. I want to tell you that the terrorists bring inappropriate clothes, doll clothes. They have turned those girls into their dolls. It's unbelievable that they are still there. Hamas terrorists still hold her husband hostage in the Gaza Strip. In another development, leaked audio from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu may have strained further negotiations to release the hostages. Qatar has been a key mediator in the talks. I'm willing to use any factor right now that helps me bring them home. I have no illusions about Qatar. They have leverage. Why do they have leverage? Because they are funding Hamas. Qatar's foreign minister released a statement in response. He said that if the comments are true, then Netanyahu is undermining the mediation process instead of prioritizing saving innocent lives, including the lives of Israeli hostages. Meanwhile, the IDF continues to battle its way through the southern Gaza Strip, finding another stash of weapons in Khan Yunus. And on Thursday, the Israeli Commando Brigade said it's now strengthening its operational control of Khan Yunus. The city is one of the final strongholds of the Hamas terrorist group in the Gaza Strip. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
And to hear more analysis on the heavy fighting in Han Yunus, we bring in retired Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Angari. He's a military strategist and CEO of the Near East Center for Strate Strategic Engagement. Good morning and thank you for joining us this morning. So there is heavy fighting as we have heard in Han Yunus and the IDF said they went into a new phase of war a few weeks ago. So can you first give us a quick update on what the new phase of war looks like currently? Well, to be honest, uh, I don't think the Israeli government is really sure what it's supposed to look like internally, because as you see, with the, uh, even the Israelis, you know, storming the Knesset and saying we need our hostages back, because when the uh, operations initially began after October 7th, uh, the whole idea was that we we're going to get the hostages back. Uh, and with the operations that took place in Han Yunus, we were trying to put, in this case, the Israelis, we we're trying to put pressure on the uh, Hamas leadership to be able to flush them out in order to be able to get the hostages back. Unfortunately, I don't think that there's a very clear understanding where they might be, if they're alive or not. And uh, mm. this is starting to put pressure internally on the Israeli civilians and citizens. And also the Han Yunus operation is important because for the uh, Israelis, 250,000 are displaced throughout Israel internally uh, to return to the Western Negev, that area has to be cleared out. The issue that the uh, Israeli government is facing right now as the war is dragging on, uh, which has to, from the Israeli perspective, to achieve the ultimate goal of wiping out Hamas, it is becoming uh, less possible for them politically, internally at least, too, to be able to uh, gauge which way the war is uh, leading, given the fact that even October 7th is still being discussed by the Israeli populace as far as it was intelligence mm. failure, and why did it take more than six to 12 hours for an reaction to the uh, Hamas fighters that were inside of Israel right. border. Right, so in, let's uh, focus on Han Yunus here for a moment. So it's set, uh, it is set that Han Yunus is a key Hamas stronghold. So tell me more about what that means in terms of you know, Israel's objectives and who or what they're actually expe expecting to find there. Well, uh, they were basically going after the um, uh, Israel, uh, Hamas leadership. They were trying to flush them out, destroy them to put pressure to come to the negotiation tables for the release of the hostages. And I think the Hamas has realized that maybe Israel is politically in a difficult position, uh, given the fact not just internally, but also with the pressures from external forces uh, that are trying to force a quick end to this war, uh, which may not be a quick end, it may drag on for a while, that uh, uh, for them to be able to take on units, force capture and kill those leaders, to bring the hostages home, it will at least achieve one of the goals of this entire war. And right now, they haven't been able to achieve it yet. Hmm. So what would that mean, though, for their progress in the war if they should be able to take control of Han Yunus? Well, look, uh, I know Benjamin Netanyahu has said that he wants to end the war. But uh, the problem he's dealing with is uh, the international pressures and internal pressures that are really focus on still trying to find out why October 7th happened, how come we haven't been able to get the hostages home. Uh, you know, the uh, world polities and the people around the world have a short memory span. If you take a look at what happened with the initial support for the Ukrainians and the Ukraine war, who's even covering it in the press these days anymore? And slowly, I think Netanyahu realizes that the longer the war goes, is less people maybe uh, apt to allow it to go on from the world politics. What happens if suddenly China walks with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and says, we're going to broker a peace deal in uh, uh, Gaza, and Hamas agrees to it, even though Israel rejects it. Now you're going to be able to allow those individuals from the CCP to suddenly come in and sit in an area that the U.S. doesn't want to see them to have a footprint in. So one last thing in a couple of seconds that I really want to touch on quickly. So because today the International Court of Justice is scheduled to rule a provisional measure. So what do you think could that change in Israel that uh, in how Israel would handle the war if they should, for example, order a stop, a halt to military actions? It's not going to be good if they have to stop, halt military actions. Look, Israel's dealing with this Vietnam moment. In Vietnam, we won every major battle that we fought. We destroyed the enemy. But we lost overall because politically everything turned against us. And today uh, there's a lot of pressure on Israel, uh, even internally and externally. Um, there is really no win in this war in the long term for Israel uh, because of the fact that even if it destroys Hamas, 
um, there's nothing for the other side to lose. I mean, all the houses that mm. uh, were in uh, northern Gaza have been destroyed. So the enemy under the side has nothing to lose. Under unconventional war, where uh, is what Hamas launched against Israel, they don't have to win the war. They just don't have to lose the war. Uh, Israel in the past, in every major fight, has been the underdog. Today, right now, that has flipped on itself. And losing the information operation war is where you most likely are going to lose the war in the long term. And I don't think there's even a plan right now that they have that they were agreed upon of what to do after the war. That's, that's a very interesting point. So thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Sargas Angari. I appreciate your time. Anytime. Ukraine and Russia trading blame over the crash of a Russian military transport plane in Russia near the Ukraine border. Russia says the plane was carrying 64 prisoners of war. Ukraine called for an international investigation into the incident. At the United Nations Security Council on Thursday, Russia blamed Ukraine for shooting down the plane and accused Ukraine's Western allies of hypocrisy. Well, perhaps you could explain to us today how self-defense is related to downing a plane, which is carrying your own POWs, so as to conduct a procedure provided for international humanitarian law. Russia said the transport was carrying prisoners of war intended for a prisoner swap with Ukraine. Ukraine said that a prisoner swap was arranged for Wednesday, but that it did not take place. Ukraine's UN representative said that Russia did not inform Ukraine of the need to secure the airspace around Belgorod. She also accused Russia of blocking emergency workers from inspecting the crash site. The situation we are dealing with effectively took place in several regions. Ukraine was not informed about the number of vehicles, routes and means of transportation of the captives. This alone may constitute intentional actions by Russia to endanger the lives and safety of the prisoners. She said Ukrainian military intelligence reported that only five bodies were sent to the morgue and no human remains are visible on videos from the crash site. Independent sources could not confirm who was on the plane or where exactly it was headed. Only Russia currently has access to the crash site. Ukraine has called for an international investigation into the crash. I have instructed the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine to provide our partners with the information available to Ukraine. Our state will insist on an international investigation. The United Nations says it's not in a position to verify the circumstances of the crash. To avoid further escalation, we urge all concerned to refrain from actions, rhetoric or allegations that could further fuel the already dangerous conflict. It's been over 700 days since the start of the war between Russia and Ukraine. The UN estimates more than 14,000 have been killed in the conflict. Coming up next, President Biden touting new economic data as he courts voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin. How are GDP doing and why and why Americans are feeling a disconnect between numbers and reality? A historic church steeple in Connecticut comes crashing down. It was caught on camera. The first helicopter to fly on another world has flown its last mission. What caused it to be grounded for good? Find out when we come back. Good to have you back. President Biden taking his Bidenomics pitch to the Midwest as he looks toward the general election. But new polling continues to show Americans are dissatisfied with the economy. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. President Biden spent Thursday touting his infrastructure investments to voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin, arguing that his Bidenomics platform is boosting jobs and businesses. On my watch, instead of infrastructure week, America is having an infrastructure decade. Yeah. Yeah. We're rebuilding factories and jobs are coming back to America. And in a Thursday statement, President Biden also praised new data showing U.S. GDP grew at a 3.3 percent pace in the last quarter of 2023, which was much faster than what was predicted. That growth, meanwhile, is fueled by both an increase in consumer spending and in government spending on both the federal and local level. And despite the positive data, the Federal Reserve has yet to decide on future rate hikes, and some experts are still warning about a mild recession in 
in 2024. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Thursday saying that inflation is now well under control, adding that recession is unlikely. Though some forecasters thought a recession last year was inevitable, President Biden and I did not. Instead of contracting, the economy has continued to grow. But while the Biden administration is trying to seize the moment to try to convince skeptical voters that the economy is improving, a new poll released on Thursday by the Pew Research Center shows that fewer than one in three Americans think the economy is good or excellent. And these ratings are far less positive than they were from 2018 through early 2020, which was during Trump's administration and before COVID hit. And now President Biden and former President Trump are both trying to use the economy as a main talking point in their 2024 pitch to voters. And President Biden is now warning that Republican victories in this upcoming election could give massive giveaways to the wealthy, while President Trump is saying that President Biden is to blame for higher cost of living. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And the steeple of a historic old church in New London, Connecticut, came crashing down yesterday. The city's mayor said one person was inside the church at the time of the collapse, but was able to get out safely, and that luckily no services were taking place at the time. The mayor says the remainder of the building is believed to be a total loss. At least one of the two remaining towers will have to be taken down. The cause of the collapse is under investigation. And NASA's little Mars helicopter has flown its last flight. The space agency made the announcement Thursday saying its mission far exceeded expectations. Descent, landing, touchdown, and spin down. The robot helicopter named Ingenuity is ending a historic mission that went beyond NASA's expectations. Its first aircraft ever to operate and fly on another world. What Ingenuity accomplished far exceeds what we thought possible. Originally intended only as a short-term tech demo, Ingenuity eventually logged 72 flights on Mars. It racked up over two hours of flight time, traveling 11 miles. It soared as high as 79 feet and hit speeds of up to 22 miles per hour. Now the little helicopter is grounded for good after one of its rotor blades became bent or broken. As it was coming down for landing, at least one of its carbon fiber rotor blades was damaged. We're investigating the possibility that the blade struck the ground. This is what the blade looks like. It's a special fiber with a special contour. While the Ingenuity remains standing and in contact with flight controllers, its $85 million mission is officially over. I think President Biden said it best after Ingenuity's first flight. He said, NASA proved once again that with relentless determination and the power of America's best minds, anything is possible. The success of the Ingenuity mission has prompted NASA to add a pair of mini helicopters to a future Mars mission. Coming up, Alaska Airlines facing huge financial losses after the grounding of some Boeing planes, how this could impact the company's growth and when it expects those planes to fly again. Staff at the New York Daily News and Forbes walked off the job yesterday to protest possible layoffs. What other media outlets are following suit? Find out. Welcome back, everyone. The grounding of Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes cost Alaska Airlines about $150 million. That's after the door plug on one of those planes blew off mid-flight. And joining us now to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Mott. Thanks for coming on, Don. Yeah, my pleasure. So is $150 million significant for the airline? Well, for the size of an airline such as Alaska Air, I think $150 million is uh, pretty significant. The airline reported earnings on Thursday and it said that it's going to lose this much in 2024. And it was because of the more than two-week grounding of that aircraft um, that uh, you mentioned earlier. And Alaska has the second most 737 MAX 9 uh, in its fleet. Uh, and the first goes to United Airlines. So the impact is being reflected there. And those two 
uh, fleets uh, are, are the only ones that have these um, 737 MAX 9s. So the cost to Alaska Air lost uh, is pr primarily from revenue uh, because they had to cancel about uh, 3,000 flights. But um, you know, Alaska potentially does have some options uh, at its disposal. For example, it could ultimately pass on those, um, uh, those lost revenue costs to Boeing. Um, but its CEO said that there's currently no details of that compensation yet, so we'll see. I see. So $150 million hit, you said that's pretty significant for Alaska. So what does that mean for their 2024 profit? What does that look like? So yeah, with, with the $150 million hit, Alaska says they're going to expect 2024 profit to be around 300 to $600 million. And this is potentially short of expectations, that number there. Um, Alaska also cast doubt on increasing its capacity growth up to target. And this is, of course, due to the grounding and as well as potential future delays for aircraft delivery. Um, but, you know, despite all this, when asked during an investor call on Thursday about whether uh, the company was reconsidering uh, the decision to buy only Boeing aircraft going forward, the CEO said that they're still going to only buy Boeing aircraft. Uh, and he said that's because uh, Alaska Air and Boeing has a deep uh, relationship and they probably want to uh, keep that uh, moving forward. Yeah, and you know, Don, Southwest actually doesn't fly any Boeing 737 MAX 9s, but it has a lot of these MAX 8s. And the CEO says that he's not really concerned that they're going to take a big hit because people are concerned to fly with them. So that's just one note for them. But when can people expect these planes to be safely back in business? Right, so uh, a bit of news on that front. Alaska Airlines says their, their 737 MAX 9 planes that pass inspection will be returning to flight schedule today, actually. It hopes to have all of the grounded planes back in the air by next Friday. United Airlines, uh, the only other U.S. company flying the MAX 9 jets, plans to have some of its grounded planes back in the air on Sunday. And meanwhile, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun was back on Capitol Hill behind closed doors for a second day of questioning by senators. So thank you. And also quick switch of topic here. There is more strikes now. So what do you what do you know about that? Okay, so in terms of that, journalists at the New York Daily News walked off the job for a one-day strike yesterday, and that happened uh, during contract talks with management. Workers at Forbes also went on strike yesterday and plan to continue until next Monday. Uh, the Forbes strike is a first in the company's over a century-old history. And Forbes uh, spokeswoman said the company is working diligently to reach a contract with the union. She also said the company uh, told employees it would lay off less than 3% of its staff. And this week, Time Magazine and Condé Nast, the publisher of Vogue, Vanity Fair, GQ, and other magazines both announced significant job cuts as well. Yeah, sounds like those jobs are down. Well, Don Ma, host of Entity Business, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Stick around, tens of thousands of books, all housed in an impressive home library. The story of one woman's love for reading and how she built her awe-inspiring collection coming up. Welcome back. So Evelyn, can you imagine having tens of thousands of books at home? at home. I'm not sure I can. I wouldn't even know where to put those. Yeah. Well, this Minnesota woman built a library out of it. Being a veteran bibliophile, she decided to share her library and love for children's literature with others who appreciate it. Take a look. To call Minnesota homeschool consultant Bonnie Anderson a bookworm would be an understatement, as she boasts a collection that would even make the most avid readers jealous. That's because it stands at around 33,000 volumes of children's literature, a number so large that she and her husband John added a library to their home just to store them. Bonnie's love of reading stems from her childhood when her mother often took her to story time at the library, and it only grew stronger when she went to college. My Professor was 90 years old, so she went back to the century, beginning century, and actually shared books from that time period. So I started collecting um, because of that class. But her obsession with books really took off when she married her husband and they started a family. In the late 1990s, the construction of their home library began, built mainly by her husband, a self-taught woodworker. 
Well, I'm pretty proud of it. It took me long enough. I probably spent 10 years finally getting it done, but I think everything in this library except for the floor was made from raw lumber, so it took me a long time. But I enjoyed the process. Having worked as a homeschool consultant for almost 40 years, Bonnie offers the use of her library to the families she serves. Her shelves largely contain American historical fiction and nonfiction, and a section focused on Western civilization, which she arranged in chronological order. Bonnie and her husband are adamant that books are a better alternative to smartphones or tablets, and that it's important to get children into the habit of reading, at least when they're young. There'll be a time for them to, I know there's incredible pressure for all the young kids going to school to have a phone and all that, but it's, it's really hard to uh, not get just wrapped up in that completely. A lot of the homeschool parents we deal with have just really enforced that. They don't, they don't have a smartphone. They don't have at the beginning, and they want to encourage reading and being together, So, and it works. The Andersons also have a bookshop in their home where Bonnie sells duplicates she has. Bonnie intends to sell her library one day, insisting it will all go in one piece to one lucky person, with some potential buyers already on a short list. Until then, however, she and her husband invite others to enjoy it by taking a tour of their library and perusing their used bookstore. That's awesome. Also that they're so welcoming about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's probably got some good reads in there. I wonder if they've read them all. Oh, yeah. You know, apparently um, the average, according to slj.com, so apparently middle schools have roughly 13,000 titles on average. So they have an entire middle school worth of uh, books in their house. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, we'll be back in just one minute, so stay tuned, and uh, we'll be right back. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world, expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are today's top stories. 24 Pennsylvania state lawmakers are challenging state and federal actions to boost voter registration, including a 2021 executive order by President Biden. More on the lawsuit filed yesterday. Does a state really have two nominating contests, a primary and a set of caucuses? Yes, Nevada. Find out why that is, who's in each one, and which contest actually counts. Trump expected back in court today as closing arguments wrap up in his civil defamation case. More on the defense and Trump's testimony yesterday. Will a UN court order Israel to suspend its military campaign in Gaza? A key decision will be made today in a case where South Africa accuses Israel of genocide. After years of service and dozens of missions, this historic Mars helicopter has flown its last mission. What caused it to be grounded? Find out when we return. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is January 26th. In today's top news is President Biden and former President Trump. They both swept their parody's primaries in New Hampshire. As the race in November gets underway, a Trump-Biden rematch is looking increasingly likely. The primary calendar is barely underway, but both parties are already turning their attention toward the general election. President Biden has called the upcoming election a fight for democracy itself. His campaign expects that they'll once again face former President Trump in the upcoming election. I'm betting come November we will vote on a record numbers. And when we do that, we'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Biden and Trump are both coming off victories in New Hampshire. 
Biden won more than 55% of the vote, even though his name didn't appear on the ballot and had to be written in. His nearest competitor, Dean Phillips, only received 20%. On Wednesday, Biden secured the backing of the United Auto Workers. At a union conference in Washington, he pledged his support for them. Look, I kept my commitment to be the most pro-union president ever. I'm proud you have my back. Let me just say I'm honored to have your back and you have mine. That's the deal. But Biden is facing backlash from within his own party over Israel. A survey by the Associated Press and NORC Research Center from last November showed while nearly 70 percent of Democrats approve of Biden's job performance overall, that number drops to 50 percent when it comes to his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. At the Washington conference, the president was interrupted by pro-Palestinian protesters. A similar incident happened just the day before in Virginia. Meanwhile, Trump performed even better in New Hampshire this year than in 2016, easily defeating his only opponent, Nikki Haley. The state saw a record turnout of more than 320,000, compared to only 288,000 in 2016. Trump's popularity with independent voters remained the same, at around 35 percent, but he managed to win nearly 75 percent of registered Republican voters, compared to 33 percent in 2016. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. We, we win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals, we've won it, and it's a very, very special place to me. It's very important. Trump will now shift his focus to the Nevada caucus coming up on February 8th, while Biden will start campaigning in South Carolina ahead of the primary there. It'll be the first official contest of the Democratic National Committee's primary process. This time, the president's name will be on the ballot. And here to explain to us how Nevada's presidential nominating contest, or contests, I should say, work, is Amber Duke, The Spectator's Washington editor and Steamboat Institute Blankley fellow. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Why does Nevada have a set of caucuses and a primary? Yes, yeah, so it's a little bit confusing, but the reason why is that the Nevada GOP decided this year that they wanted to have a caucus system similar to what happens in Iowa. However, Nevada state law also requires a primary to be held. So what's going to happen is the party's caucus will be the one that decides who receives delegates. And actually, candidates have to decide whether to participate in the caucus or the primary. They can't be listed on both. Donald Trump is deciding to participate in the party's caucus, whereas Nikki Haley is listed on the primary ballot. So even if she were to win the Nevada primary, she wouldn't receive any delegates. Right, and that's 26 GOP delegates at stake there. So Amber, why is Haley not running in Nevada's caucuses? And does that mean she won't win any of those delegates then? Yes, that's correct. She would not win any delegates because she's not participating in the caucus. And I believe the reason why is just that she didn't meet the deadline for transferring over from the primary ballot. It seems like a huge mistake on her campaign's part and perhaps a sign that when she first got into this race, she wasn't expecting to be as competitive in Iowa, New Hampshire as she ended up being. Right, yeah, that's really interesting you mentioned that about the deadline. There's a University of Nevada, Las Vegas professor who suggests that it's just simply because she's afraid that if she goes in the caucus, she's going to lose because all those diehard Trump supporters are going to turn out. But she may just do a little bit better in the primary and get some votes showing she has broad support. But could Haley even lose the primary even if Trump's not in it? And if so, what impact would that have? So she could lose technically if voters picked either someone else who's on the primary ballot or if they were to do a write-in candidate. However, it seems very unlikely. Um, Trump would not be able to win again because he is participating in the caucus. And so it's almost a surefire win for her to win the primary because she's <laughs> essentially the only major candidate that people will be able to vote for there. But again, it doesn't really mean anything. The only uh, way she would be able to spin a victory in Nevada in the primary as opposed to the caucus is to say that it's a momentum builder, that it's proof that the voters want another option besides the former president. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Amber Duke, Spectators Washington editor and Steamboat Institute Blankley fellow. Thank you. The battle continues between former President Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, even as the GOP frontrunner marches closer to the presidential nomination. Here's the latest from the Republican contest. On Thursday, a draft resolution was introduced in the Republican National Committee, or RNC. 
It would have officially declared Trump the Republican Party's presumptive nominee. But the former president came out against the resolution for the sake of party unity. He said on Truth Social that he wants to finish the process off the old-fashioned way, at the ballot box. The resolution was subsequently withdrawn. The RNC also clarified that this was just a resolution and not the stance of the committee. Meanwhile, Trump continues to be vocal about his rival Nikki Haley. He has criticized her from running against him in the past. But I will never run against him, ever. She said this for years. Then she calls a news conference, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've decided to run for president. I said, that's not so surprising because I understand Nikki. She, she can't help herself. I understand her very well, better than anybody. And most recently on Truth Social, he accused her of lashing out at true American patriots. He also threatened to blacklist her campaign donors should he win the nomination. He said anyone who continues to make contributions to Haley's campaign would be barred from the MAGA camp. Haley responded on X with a link to her campaign. The former ambassador has raised $1 million since that warning, but also lost prominent funders. Haley has been campaigning in South Carolina in the build-up to the state's primary next month. She's vowed to stay in the race. A group of two dozen Pennsylvania state lawmakers are challenging an executive order related to voting that was signed by President Biden in 2021. The executive order told federal agencies to find ways to expand voters' access to registration and information about voting. The state lawmakers filed a federal lawsuit yesterday challenging the legality of three voting-related executive branch actions that aimed to boost voter registration. The lawsuit also challenges two state-level actions. One is last fall's introduction of automatic voter registration by Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro. The other is a 2018 state directive under then-Democratic Governor Tom Wolf. The group says the Elections Clause and the Electors Clause of the U.S. Constitution give state lawmakers the sole constitutional right to determine the manner of elections. The 24 Pennsylvania Republicans are also asking the judge to issue an order that would stop the president, governor, or state executives from making future changes to the elections process by usurping the state lawmakers' authority. And closing arguments in Trump's civil defamation trial are set to take place in New York this morning. The former president briefly testified yesterday in the case brought against him by E. Jean Carroll. The judge placed limits on what Trump could say. The jury is only deciding what additional damages, if any, he must pay. It could mean a multi-million dollar verdict against him. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the case. Trump in his testimony Thursday said yes when asked by the defense if he had publicly denied Carroll's rape claim to defend himself. Trump attorney Alina Haba first asked her client if he stood by his previous deposition denying the allegations. Trump answered 100% yes. He went on to say he considered it a false accusation. Judge Lewis Kaplan instructed the court to strike everything from the record after Trump's confirmation. Haba asked Trump if he ever instructed anyone to hurt Miss Carroll. Trump answered no. He responded, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly the presidency. The judge asked the court to disregard the remark after the word no. Trump was not allowed to comment on the verdict from last year. That earlier jury awarded Carroll $5 million at a trial Trump did not attend. This jury is instructed to consider only what additional damages, if any, Trump must pay Carroll. Her lawyer asked for $10 million in compensatory damages and more in punitive damages. Trump has promised to appeal the rulings in both cases. Haba also questioned Carol's longtime friend, Carol Martin. The Trump attorney brought out Carol's text to Martin, where she wrote she had no security concerns at the time. Haba asked Martin if she felt Carol enjoyed the attention that came with her lawsuits against Trump. Martin said yes, it was true at different times in early years. One of Martin's texts said Carol's narcissism had run amok. Another said Carol was, quote, like a drug addict, and the drug is herself. Judge Kaplan told the nine jurors Thursday they'll likely have the case to begin deliberating by lunchtime on Friday. There were no cameras inside the courtroom, but Trump told reporters when leaving, this is not America. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And earlier I spoke with Hugh Fike, Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. I asked him to break down the battle between the Biden administration and Texas over the border. Democratic lawmakers are calling on the Biden administration to federalize the Texas National Guard, alleging obstruction and creation of chaos at the border. Is Texas defying the Supreme Court ruling that allows agents to keep cutting that razor wire set up by the state? 
Not at all. The ruling actually just said that the border agents could, in fact, cut razor wires. So what Texas is doing is still clearly within the bounds of their uh, sovereign right as a state to defend themselves against an invasion, which they have cited as, uh, you know, in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, uh, allows them to, to to defend themselves. And so they, they are continuing in that vein. Um, and, you know, Governor Abbott has said that he's not going to back away from it, as did 25 Republican governors around the around the country. I mean, that's half this half the country has said we defend uh, Texas's right to do this. So what's the compact between states and the federal government that Governor Abbott says has been broken by the Biden administration? And what happens if that pact is broken? Yeah, I mean, there's a social compact that says the federal government is going to take on and defend the country. And it's very clear that what what he's allowing to happen on the Texas border and uh, you know, broadly along the southern border is a violation of that compact. He's saying, I'm not allow I'm not protecting the states. I'm not protecting the country. I'm allowing millions of people to come across the border. I'm allowing uh, known uh, terrorists to come across the border. Um, and so Texas has said, you know what, that that compact is broken and we're going to step up and our expressly granted powers in the Constitution to, depend, to defend the, the, the state, but also repel an invasion. And that's explicitly said in the Constitution. And so when, you know, Governor Abbott, I think, is talking about a broken compact, he's talking about the federal government willfully not defending the states. You fight Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Thank you for weighing in on this important topic. Thank you. Coming up, a U.N. court could order Israel to lay down its arms today. It's the latest in a case where South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide. How is Israel responding? Four Houthi leaders hit with sanctions from the U.S. and the U.K. More on the reasons behind the move against the terror group and the possible effects. The first helicopter to fly on another world will fly no more. What caused it to be grounded after dozens of historic missions? That's after the break. Good morning again and welcome back. United Nations judges in The Hague will rule today whether to order Israel to suspend its military campaign in Gaza. This as officials push ahead with efforts to negotiate a new deal for a ceasefire and release of more Israeli hostages. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the closely watched case. The judges of the International Court of Justice are due to rule on South Africa's request for emergency measures against Israel. The African nation is asking the court to order Israel to immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. South Africa has accused Israel of genocide in the Gaza Strip. Notre Dame professor Mary O'Connell explains what the case is about. Whether Israel's national leadership, its government, intends to create conditions of life or directly kill um, people of Gaza so that a significant portion no longer exists. The court will issue its ruling at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in a hearing expected to last about an hour. The judges will not rule on the merits of the genocide allegations, which may take years to decide. But South Africa has asked the court to issue an interim order compelling Israel to suspend its military operations. Elon Levy, an Israeli official, accused South Africa of giving political and legal cover to the October 7th attack by Hamas that left over 1,200 Israelis dead and triggered Israel's campaign. He said Israel's legal team would dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to continue the war in Gaza until complete victory against Hamas. The court's rulings are final and without appeal but it has no way of enforcing them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Could the decision of today's UN court change in how Israel handles the war? Earlier, I spoke with retired Lieutenant Colonel Sarga Sangari. He's a military strategist and CEO of the Near East Center of Strategic Engagement. And this is what he said. 
it's not going to be good if they have to stop halt multi actions. Look, Israel's dealing with this Vietnam war moment. In Vietnam, we won every major battle that we fought. We destroyed the enemy, but we lost overall because politically everything turned against us. And today, uh, there's a lot of pressure on Israel, uh, even internally and externally. Um, there is really no win in this war in the long term for Israel uh, because of the fact that even if it destroys Hamas, um, there's nothing for the other side to lose. I mean, all the houses that yeah. uh, were in uh, northern Gaza have been destroyed. So the enemy on the other side has nothing to lose. Under unconventional war where uh, is what Hamas launched against Israel, they don't have to win the war. They just don't have to lose the war. Uh, Israel in the past, in every major fight, has been the underdog. Today, right now, that has flipped on itself. And losing the information operational war is where you most likely are going to lose the war in the long term. And I don't think there's even a plan right now that they have that they ever agreed upon of what to do after the war. The U.S. and the U.K. imposed sanctions on four Houthi leaders yesterday. The U.S. Treasury says they're all accused of assisting or sponsoring acts of terrorism. The sanctions block access to U.S. property and bank accounts. They also prevent the targeted people and companies from doing business with Americans. The Houthis have been putting ships in the Red Sea at peril since November last year. The specially designated global terrorist group says it's acting in solidarity with Palestinians. But the Iran-backed Houthis have targeted vessels with no clear links to Israel, endangering shipping in the key trade route. The State Department says the U.S. is continuing to take action to hold the Houthis accountable for their attacks. The Treasury Undersecretary says the joint action with the U.K. demonstrates the U.S.'s collective action to leverage all authorities to stop these attacks. Switching topics, NASA's Little Mars helicopter has flown its last flight. The space agency made the announcement Thursday saying its mission far exceeded expectations. Descent, landing, touchdown, and spin down. The robot helicopter named Ingenuity is ending a historic mission that went beyond NASA's expectations. Its first aircraft ever to operate and fly on another world. What Ingenuity accomplished far exceeds what we thought possible. Originally intended only as a short-term tech demo, Ingenuity eventually logged 72 flights on Mars. It racked up over two hours of flight time, traveling 11 miles. It soared as high as 79 feet and hit speeds of up to 22 miles per hour. Now the little helicopter is grounded for good after one of its rotor blades became bent or broken. As it was coming down for landing, at least one of its carbon fiber rotor blades was damaged. We're investigating the possibility that the blade struck the ground. This is what the blade looks like. It's a special fiber with a special contour. While the Ingenuity remains standing and in contact with flight controllers, its $85 million mission is officially over. I think President Biden said it best after Ingenuity's first flight. He said, NASA proved once again that with relentless determination and the power of America's best minds, anything is possible. The success of the Ingenuity mission has prompted NASA to add a pair of mini-helicopters to a future Mars mission. Well, you know, Evelyn, it's hard enough to fly a drone in your living room, let alone fly something like that yeah, way out I there imagine. in Mars. Yeah, and uh, NASA's um, Bill N Nelson actually was saying that this was the first aircraft on another planet. That's exciting. Yeah, right? All right, um, we have to wrap up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.